Welcome to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine, a show where we report, rebel, and tell it like it is. On this show, we center your concerns about rebuilding our nation and advancing the promise of equality. Join me as we tackle the most compelling issues of our times. On our show, History Matters, we examine the past as we pivot and think about the future. On today's show, we focus on the question, why does the death penalty still exist in the United States? On January 16th, just a few weeks ago, Dustin Higgs became the 13th and final person executed by then President Donald Trump and his administration. Higgs's execution came less than a week before Inauguration Day. Some have referred to this as a killing spree that began six months before the inauguration, with six executions occurring after President Trump lost the election. This constituted, as some have called, the most consecutive civilian executions by the federal government or any state in the 244-year history of the United States, and ended a 17-year bipartisan federal moratorium on executions. Now, with Higgs's execution, it's important to note that it took place on the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This reality is troubling, not the least of which because Higgs was a black man and the death penalty is riddled with race discrimination and racial disparities. So what purpose does the death penalty serve? How does race and racism show up in the implementation of the death penalty? Is there ever a humane way to kill another person? There's so many questions to unpack with this and so helping us to sort out those questions and many others is a really special guest. I'm joined by Stephen Rohde. He is a constitutional law scholar, lecturer, writer, political activist, and retired civil rights lawyer. He is the founder and chair of Interfaith Communities United for Justice and Peace. He's the past president of the ACLU of Southern California and past chair of Bend the Ark. I couldn't be happier than to have Stephen Rohde with me. Let's begin with the recent actions of the former Trump administration. During the 2020 presidential campaign, with a bloodthirsty support of the Attorney General William Barr, the Trump administration executed 13 men and women within six months, the most consecutive civilian executions by the federal government or any state in the 244 year history of the United States. This we take from your work, Stephen. So tell us about how you unpacked this recently for Ms. Magazine. You wrote this unprecedented killing spree ended a 17 year bipartisan federal moratorium. Six of the executions occurred after Trump lost the election. So what does the Trump administration's killing spree as you frame it as a, and as others have, what does that reveal about the role of the death penalty in the United States? This was a bloody end to the Trump administration. It was shameful. As you've said, we had this long period of a bipartisan federal uh, moratorium, and that was broken uh, with the support of uh, Attorney General William Barr 
uh, and uh, the president, uh, the former president himself. Uh, it's important to note that uh, this period of killing was emblematic of the death penalty across the country. Six of the 13 uh, men and women uh, who were executed were black. One was Native American. Uh, the last of these executions of Dustin John Higgs, a black man, took place on the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King, simply to add racist cruelty uh, to this entire debacle. It was shameful. And uh, I may add in a moment uh, what Justice Sotomayor had to say about all this. Well, in fact, let's build on that. In the article, you explain, and I'm quoting here, that in a further shocking display of racist cruelty, right, you mentioned Dustin Jog, John Higgs, black man. It takes place on the birthday of Dr. King. Uh, this was in addition to the reality that six of those executed, just as you say, were black and one Native American. Now, these disparities we see playing out in the death penalty, and we see it within the criminal justice system more specifically. What role does race play and racism play in the discussion around the death penalty? Overall, the death penalty is this trash can of American policy into which virtually every flaw uh, in American society is thrown. And that's no uh, more true than in the racial disparities that plague uh, the death penalty uh, overall. Half of the defendants uh, sentenced to death in 2019 were people of color out of all proportion uh, to their population in the United States. And of those, 35% were African-American and 15 were Latinx. Here in California, we have a Riverside County that has sentenced more people to die than any other county in the United States. 92% of those from that county are Black or Latino. And in Los Angeles, where I live, the last 22 people sentenced to death have been people of color. Um, this is just a debacle in American society that all of the legacies of slavery and Jim Crow and white supremacy are deeply embedded uh, in our criminal punishment system. And when it comes to the death penalty, when there is no remedy once someone has been killed, uh, it is the height of the cruelty of this system. Well, let's unpack that a bit further because there could be some that, that say, well, if these people have done the crime, then they should do the time. And if part of that time also includes being placed to death, well, they deserve it. Now, that may seem reductive and simplistic, but that's an argument that's made. I mean, let's face it, that's an argument that was coming out of the Trump White House and with the um, Attorney General uh, Barr. So what's the response to that? The problem is that the death penalty is a perfect punishment in an imperfect system. It's a perfect punishment from the standpoint of completely removing a human being from society permanently and uh, irrevocably, but it happens in a system. 
that is so riddled uh, with overwhelming flaws. All of the research, all of our experience show that the death penalty uh, is flawed due to racial and economic disparities, uh, mistakes and misconduct by police, prosecutors, jurors, judges, uh, ineffective assistance of defense counsel, junk science, uh, false confessions, mistaken eyewitness identifications, and the exorbitant cost of implementation, if that's all you cared about. So you have a system, whatever your uh, goals might be, whatever your sense of punishment and retribution, this is a deeply flawed system which does not produce reliable outcomes. And we know this because since 1973, at least 173 former death row prisoners have been exonerated, uh, having been found uh, either innocent or had flawed prosecutions. Uh, one study from the National Academy of Sciences reports that at over 4% of defendants sentenced to death in the United States were actually innocent. Now, I hope it's coming across that I oppose the death penalty for guilty as well as innocent persons because of all the flaws in the system. But even if you thought about the notion of executing innocent people in this day and age, uh, it's outrageous. So all the rationales about punishment and the abandonment of the values of rehabilitation and giving people a second chance, uh, if you discard all of that, which I think is a huge mistake in America, you are still faced with a deeply flawed system. Well, in thinking about race, as you've lifted up in your writings about the death penalty, one can't help but think about, or at least consider, um, as you've put us to do and, and others, that the death penalty, given its racial implications, is a, a kind of Jim Crow extension, sort of taken from the private mob that storms the jail and and horrifically strings someone in a tree. In some ways, it's the state that carry on carries on a part of that, particularly given the mistakes prosecutorial misconduct, uh, police misconduct, withholding of evidence, and all of these other, you know, matters. So I, I want to talk about the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court is aware of these flaws and, and we're going to get there. But before we do, let's just add uh, gender and sex into this equation too. Um, another piece of this issue, which is really important, is to talk about um, the sex and gender uh, aspects. Lisa Montgomery was the first woman executed by the federal government since 1953. And as you wrote, women are rarely sentenced to death in the United States and executions of women are even rarer. So what happened in this case? Uh, this uh, case is, is awful. And people uh, after this uh, podcast should go back, uh, look at the case of Lisa Montgomery. Uh, Ms. Magazine has done some original reporting on this. Uh, here was a deeply troubled woman uh, who had been the victim of unspeakable torture and sex trafficking, suffering from longstanding debilitating uh, disease and psychosis and hallucinations. And her lawyer put it so well 
um, when uh, Kelly Henry said, our constitution forbids the execution of a person who is unable to rationally understand her execution. Uh, this execution violates the constitution, federal law, its own regulations and longstanding norms along the way. Um, the failure to understand the humanity of each person uh, who is brought to uh, the capital punishment system uh, was resplendent in the case of uh, Lisa Montgomery. This was an utter failure uh, to look past her crime and to look at who she was as a human being, uh, to lift up her dignity and to consider her mental state, uh, which is a flaw across the board. So it was a shocking case uh, that came in the midst of all of that uh, bloodbath that uh, Trump engaged in. So you mentioned something there that I think it's important for listeners to pay attention to, and that is looking beyond the crime. There may be those that wonder, well, is that the role of the court to look beyond the crime? Can you tell us a bit about um, whether that's legitimate for the court? Has the court done that in the past, looking beyond the crime? Yes. The modern death penalty system uh, divides a trial into two parts, the guilt phase and the penalty phase. The guilt phase is meant to ferret out the truth. Uh, did the person uh, commit this crime or not? And certain crimes uh, have added special circumstances which qualify them for the death penalty. Uh, the second phase of the trial is the penalty phase where the jury is uh, obliged to balance mitigating circumstances versus aggravating circumstances. And the courts have upheld that process. It is on the side of the balance of mitigating circumstances where a total picture of the individual is expected to be seen and understood by the jurors. Uh, often uh, due to limited resources on the defense side, uh, the full picture of an uh, of a defendant is not uh, fully presented. These cases are always up against the immense resources of the state uh, to bring in uh, forensics and uh, other experts to try to convince the jury to issue a verdict of death. Uh, the defense uh, has to scramble to find family members, medical records, uh, social profiles and the rest. It is a duty of our uh, criminal punishment system at all stages uh, to really ask the question, are we going to judge someone by the worst moment of their lives if in fact they have committed uh, such a crime? And I think that is what has caused people to begin to seriously doubt that the death penalty uh, is an appropriate punishment. Many states have the alternative of uh, life in prison without possibility of parole. Uh, many question that system because it could be a death sentence in prison uh, to send someone away for their entire life uh, without again considering any redeeming uh, experiences and transformations they've experienced while incarcerated. But we do have alternatives. And when you put up to the public uh, and ask them whether they support uh, the death penalty or 
life without parole. In the most recent survey, 36% only supported death. So today there actually is a minority public support for the death penalty because I think as more and more of these cases of injustice, of the flaws in the system are beginning to be unearthed, the, the public is beginning uh, to reject the use of the death penalty. And I believe eventually as more and more states abolish the death penalty, uh, we are going to hopefully see this as a relic of that very uh, legacy of uh, slavery and discrimination that you mentioned. So let's get to the Supreme Court. You mentioned earlier uh, Justice Sotomayor's dissent, and boy, has she been taking up the mantle of dissents uh, in this term. And so she wrote the scathing dissent, which you highlighted in your Ms. Magazine article. She called out the unprecedented nature of the Trump administration's executions, and she wrote, I'll quote here, rather than permit an orderly resolution of these suits, the government consistently refused to postpone executions and sought emergency relief to proceed before courts had meaningful opportunity to determine if the executions were even legal. This is not justice, she wrote. She said, yet the court has allowed the United States to execute 13 people in six months under a statutory scheme and regulatory protocol that have been received, that have received inadequate scrutiny without resolving the serious claims uh, the condemned individuals have raised. Those whom the government executed during this endeavor deserved more from this court. What do you take from that dissent? And what do you what role do you see as Sotomayor playing in cases like this and others that you've been writing about? Well, thank goodness for Justice Sotomayor. Since the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, she has taken up this question of uh, the death penalty. Uh, in the Higgs case, which is the one uh, she's writing in, uh, the six-member conservative majority cast aside all of the appeals without even holding a hearing. And uh, Justice Sotomayor's dissent uh, nailed them for that. Uh, in addition to the excerpts you've cited, she pointed out that they are fast tracking challenges uh, to these sentences and the courts do not have a chance to even determine if the executions uh, were legal. Uh, this is shocking and shameful in its own right. Uh, people try to presume we have a lofty uh, justice system and appellate court system, but too often when you do take the lid off that garbage can, uh, you see how the sausage is made. It is, it is reprehensible to rush cases uh, to judgment involving the... Uh, permanent elimination of the defendant through execution. How can we not have exhausted in the Higgs case, uh, in Lisa Montgomery's case and the others, every possible uh, legal argument? Uh, that is shameful uh, in its own right. Uh, I am hopeful that uh, some of the great lawyers that are arguing these cases in the face of a six-member conservative court uh, we'll have inroads to ensure, but I think it's because eventually 
uh, and maybe we'll come to Harry Blackman, uh, it, they realize the futile nature of that search. We, we actually will. Is this just predictive? For those of you who don't know, Steve is a great friend of mine and colleague uh, within the ACLU. And so it's a pleasure to be with you on the show today. Steve, I do want to raise an issue that you've likely heard about, and that is the Supreme Court letting stand the federal appeals court injunction halting an Alabama execution on the claim of religious discrimination. This involves the case of Willie B. Smith III on February the 11th, 2021. Are you able to tell us, just give us any kind of insight about that? Yes, and this is a, a glimmer of hope. Here was a man who wanted his religious advisor with him uh, in the closing hours of his life. Uh, that was denied by the authorities uh, the case went up through the courts, and most recently, uh, the appellate courts uh, ordered uh, that he be entitled to have his religious uh, advisor, or the execution could not go forward. Uh, the authorities remarkably uh, chose uh, to deny him the medical advisor, but also postpone the execution. So remarkably, when that case made its way rapidly to the Supreme Court, the court did not uh, intervene to reverse that appellate decision, uh, meaning that that will go forward and the question of the right to a, a religious advisor will be, uh, will be implemented. I, I took a little glimmer from that. Sometimes cases on a procedural basis are not an entire uh, look at what the justices are thinking, but this means that there were not uh, five justices on the court uh, to turn back that uh, appeal. So we have uh, glimmers of hope. Hope springs eternal on this issue as well as others. It springs eternal on this show too, actually. So uh, with that in mind, we'll get to that a little bit later because we do like to ask our guests about what silver linings happen to be uh, coming forward. But in Justice Sotomayor's dissent, you know, there's a way in which it reaches back to Justice Blackman, whom you were just mentioning. Justice Blackman was appointed by Richard Nixon and was the justice who wrote the opinion in Roe v. Wade. That was a seven to two opinion striking down criminal abortion uh, statutes. Five of those seven happened to be Republican appointed. But we're not talking about abortion here. We're talking about the death penalty. And Justice Blackman said in 1994 in a dissent that rather than continue to coddle the court's delusion that the desired level of fairness has been achieved and the need for regulation eviscerated, he said, I feel morally and intellectually obligated simply to concede that the death penalty experiment has failed. How do we interpret that? What's your response? This was a remarkable moment in our movement to end capital punishment. Um, Harry Blackman was a conservative uh, justice, uh, as you say, appointed by a Republican. But he had experienced for over 20 years these cases coming before him and coming before the court. And he said, that despite the efforts of the states and the courts to devise legal formulas and procedural rules to meet the daunting challenge of imposing a fair and reasonable death penalty, 
the penalty remains fraught with arbitrariness, discrimination, caprice, and mistake. And he said, from this day forward, I no longer shall tinker with the machinery of death. He simply refused to be a part of a charade that acted as if we are able with legal certainty uh, to reach those decisions. He said, the problem is that the inevitability of factual legal and moral error gives us a system that we know must wrongly kill some defendants, a system that fails to deliver the fair, consistent, and reliable sentences of death required by the Constitution. This is a bittersweet uh, report to give because that was in 1994. And the court, through various administrations and various majorities, uh, has not marshaled the majority to listen to Harry Blackman's wise and experienced words and to, to bring an end to this system. What that does, uh, Michelle, is it leaves us with uh, the remedy of the courts and it leaves us with the remedy of the people. And I think that's uh, where the future lies. It's 27 years ago. So moving forward, how should we be thinking about these issues? We've got a new administration, the Biden administration. Um, we have a court where no longer Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, sits. And uh, what's your sense, in fact, with regard to Justice Amy Coney Barrett? And then we'll get to international questions. But, but, I, but I want for you to give our audience your intuitions about how she'll sit on these issues. To my knowledge, she has not ruled on death penalty cases in her appellate service and has yet, although she was one of the six, I should withdraw my, my encomium. She was one of the six to turn back the Higgs appeals and all the other appeals during this killing spree. You know, you would expect someone who at her confirmation hearing uh, espoused deeply Christian values and who joins a, a majority of Catholics uh, on the United States Supreme Court uh, to live those values, to live the value of life. Um, and I am just hopeful that if she was telling the truth at her confirmation hearings, that she will study the briefs listen to the arguments that are presented, uh, that she may see the light uh, of the accumulated evidence uh, of why, as Justice uh, Blackman so well put it, this system inevitably uh, makes mistakes. And when the consequences are death, uh, one would hope that any uh, caring, sentient uh, Supreme Court justice would see that. I am not holding my breath on that court. Uh, that's, uh, there is a six member uh, conservative majority with only five votes needed in any such case. Uh, I truly uh, mean for you and your listeners to think that our, our remedies lie uh, elsewhere in our political system.
Well, speaking of that lying elsewhere in our political system, let's talk about where the United States sits uh, internationally and more specifically what it means in terms of this president, uh, that is Biden. So let's first talk about Biden and then we'll open it up to how we fit internationally. So Biden has pledged to stop federal executions uh, and there may be legislation that's introduced by Congress to abolish the federal death penalty. Any response to that? Well, that is a breath of fresh air. It means that these federal uh, executions, essentially the uh, new president is signaling a moratorium or a return to the 17 year moratorium that pre-existed Trump. So I do think we will get some breathing space, at least on the federal level, uh, to not face these horrific uh, executions. I think uh, President Biden and Congress uh, need to go farther. I think that having had all of the studies of the death penalty, all of the research that's already been done, we don't have to study it to death. Uh, I think if we can marshal uh, majorities uh, in both uh, houses uh, and uh, his presidential leadership, um, we can join, if I can tie the issues together, we can join 108 countries that have abolished capital punishment in law or practice across the world, and seven have limited it to uh, war crimes. The United States, and this is the kind of argument uh, I would be so grateful to see President Biden make on the day uh, that he issues a moratorium and on the day he signs legislation to abolish the federal death penalty, because the United States uh, is in a gruesome international league of state-killing countries, as I have written. We are just behind China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and Egypt in using and implementing uh, the death penalty. We are this outlier on the international scene compared to other uh, countries that claim uh, to be uh, democracies. The uh, arc of history is bending toward justice. Uh, since 2009, six states, uh, New Mexico, Illinois, Connecticut, Maryland, New Hampshire, and Colorado have abolished capital punishment. Uh, two other states, uh, Washington and Delaware, have done it because their courts have found the punishment unconstitutional. This is where history is taking us. Uh, and among all of his uh, accomplishments, I think Joe Biden could add, uh, and Congress could add, uh, elimination of the federal death penalty. That would set a standard uh, of the uh, increasing uh, trend toward uh, abolition. And I think it would help us uh, in California where I live and in other states across the country. So Steve, we get to a point in our show and we could have this conversation for quite a while and I think it needs to build out in many different ways. You've been so very helpful today. But I want to ask you about what we see as coming next that provides any levels of hope for the movement that you've been part of for a very long time. This is not new to you. You didn't need to be convinced 
because of what happened with the Trump administration's uh, executions, those killings that you mentioned. You've known about these issues, you've articulated about these issues for quite some time. You've said that it's a shame that it's taken so long for Justice Blackmun's dissent to really resonate. So in light of all of that, where is it that you see some form of progress, some form of hope to leave with our listeners? And, you know, what should they do? Michelle, I am hopeful. I'm a glass half full kind of guy on this and many other issues. Uh, I see what uh, young people are bringing to this movement. They are not adopting uh, the myths and the shibboleths of, of old. Uh, I see people uh, learning more about the death penalty. Uh, conservative thinkers, George Will and others have come to the side of abolition. So I think the constituencies for abolition are expanding. That's certainly true in the faith uh, community. Uh, here in California, I'm active with Death Penalty Focus, uh, one of the largest uh, nationwide organizations that has been actively opposing the death penalty. Uh, on two occasions, uh, because in California, the voters must decide the death penalty since it was written into our constitution, uh, unless the courts do. And we've mounted two major campaigns uh, to abolish the death penalty. We came within small percentage points in each campaign of doing so. Uh, our governor, Gavin Newsom, has imposed a moratorium on the death penalty. We have a district attorney in Los Angeles, George Gascone, who has announced he will not uh, seek the death penalty and he will seek to mitigate uh, existing death sentences. Uh, prosecutors across the country are doing that from a progressive standpoint. So I see activism in every state where the death penalty is retained, uh, moves to reduce the number of executions by electing uh, progressive DAs. And I see hopeful signs in these public opinion polls, uh, that people are uh, exhausted by the notion of having the death penalty. Uh, we have uh, something close to 740 people on California's death row. If we ever open the floodgates to those executions, we would have to be killing people twice a week for 14 years. Did you say twice kill. a week for 14 years? Yes, over 700 people. I don't think the American people, the people of California, uh, have the stomach for that in the sense that they have finally understood why a system like this uh, is so uh, bloodthirsty and deeply flawed. So I think it is like uh, public policy, civil liberties, and civil rights issues across this country. Uh, based on where we started this conversation, I think abolition of the death penalty needs to be deeply embedded uh, in the national reckoning over race that this country hopefully will uh, grab a hold of. Uh, it will be important to look at it from the standpoint of uh, the injuries that it does to everyone in the system. Uh, I think growing majorities in legislatures and among the public uh, are seeing that it would advance the interests of equality and justice 
to once and for all abolish state killing of this nature. I think we as a people are up to that task. I think there is organizational support at the ACLU and organizations across the country to do this work, but it's gonna have to be a sustained effort. We are at the tipping point of almost a majority of states that have ended the death penalty. This means that people listening to this broadcast need to use all the traditional methods. When they see a story in the newspaper about the death penalty, they need to write a letter to the editor. When the federal death penalty is debated in Congress and in the White House, uh, they need to speak up to their elected officials. They need to speak up to their community organizations and religious congregations. We need to pay attention to this issue as we reach that tipping point. I genuinely believe that with the leadership of people like Brian Stevenson and others across this country, uh, we are ready and built for this moment. And the fact that you gave this uh, issue full attention on your admirable program means a lot to me. And I think it means a lot to people who care about justice across the country. Thank you, Steve, for being on our show. Couldn't have had a better guest to talk about these issues. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. Guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. I want to thank my guest, Stephen Rohde, for joining me and being a part of this critical and insightful conversation. And to our listeners, I thank you for tuning in for the full story. We hope you join us again for our next episode where we will be reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is with special guests tackling very important issues related to International Women's Day a feminist foreign policy. For more information about what we discussed today, please head to MsMagazine.com. And if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America, being unbought and unbossed, and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to visit us at Apple Podcast. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. Rate and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Let us know what you think about our show and please support independent feminist media. And if you want to reach out to us to recommend guests for our show or just chat with us, you can reach us at ontheissuesatmizmagazine.com. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Kathy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zoll and Mariah Lindsay. We thank Oliver Hogg for research and digital assistance. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Marsh Allen, and music by Chris J. Lee. Stephanie Wilner provides executive assistance.